I remember going to a conference and being introduced as a, a female CEO. And I got up and I just started laughing. I was like, I have never in my life heard a man be introduced as a male CEO. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, the unlikely path that led Tory Burch to create one of the most successful lifestyle and fashion brands in the world, the number one thing that drives her, and how she's empowering and enabling other entrepreneurs along the way. Tori Birch, welcome to No Limits. Thank you. I'm so happy to finally be here. I'm thrilled <laughs> to have you here. You have been named one of the most powerful women in the world by Forbes, CEO and Chief Creative Officer of your own company, Tori Birch, best-selling author. You recently launched the Tori Sport line. Plus, your foundation is working to empower female entrepreneurs. Your shirt says across it, ambitious. <laughs> yes. Well, we're launching our ambition whole um, concept, and it's uh, Ambition 2.0. We started last year, and it was a great success. So we're super excited to continue the conversation. Well, I'm really looking forward to talking about that with you here were you, as a kid growing up in Valley Forge, were you ambitious? I think I was ambitious in many ways. I had three brothers, so definitely in sports. We used to have massive competitions every weekend <laughs> on the tennis court and uh, climbing trees and things like that. But in college, I started a sorority with 10 friends and um, at University of Pennsylvania. And, you know, I just in different ways was always entrepreneurial. Even when I was working in, at jobs, I had an entrepreneurial attitude and, and approach. Was apparel retail, was that always in your blood, something you thought of even as a kid? I No, not at all. I was a complete tomboy. Uh, never put on a dress probably until my junior prom. And so what did that you want to be as a little kid? I wanted to be a professional tennis player <laughs> or a psychiatrist. So I had really? different ambitions. I knew I wanted to be something. And I also always, always, always wanted to help people. Did you ever pursue the psychiatrist route? No. I, yes. In, in a, a very non-traditional way where I give advice to friends. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> That's perfect. And vice versa. Yeah. Right. So, OK, so you're at UPenn. You're studying art history. Were you doing internships at the time to get I, into the industry? Not so much. I really wasn't. I loved art, though. So I always thought that I would go into the art world. And so I um, freshman year, I was in, decided to become that major. And then senior year, when I was graduating, I just sent a letter to a designer I admired. And he said I could have a job if I started the week after I graduated. And wow. that was the beginning of my fashion, my entree into the fashion industry. But that's pretty bold that you would send the letter. And it's pretty... I would say unlikely that it would lead, right? Well, and that must have been very, a great letter, right? It was, a, it was, it was an okay letter. It was a bit self-deprecating, which I think he liked. But he yeah. was, it was crazy. I mean, we, we went and um, the whole office was white. There were no desks. There were mats on the floor, and he looked like Rasputin. And he was this incredible <laughs> designer and total minimalist. And he said that everyone copied him who was in fashion. <laughs> um, it was definitely an education, and um, that's where that's where I started. And then my career took different paths from there. How did you navigate that from there on? Was there, and, and one thing that I was thinking of when you were talking about going to UPenn, was there ever pressure to go to design school where people saying like, you got to go to no, FIT I never, or something like never that? I never even thought about designing actually until I started this company, so which is wow. only 13 and a half years ago. Wow. So, okay. So along the way, you have this first opportunity because you're bold, because you reached out and wrote a great letter. How did you navigate the other opportunities? Well, so it just was, it was very organic. And, you know, 
the way I look at it and what I talk about with entrepreneurs today is that maybe each job is not the perfect job, but you have to take something from it. And, yes. And that's what I really tried to do is really look at each job in in what it could offer and what I could learn from where I was. And so I met someone that was an editor that she had visited him, and then she offered me a job at Harper's Bazaar. Um, and then I was really exposed to incredible fashion and photographers, and I, I went on different shoots. Um, and from there, I went to Ralph Lauren. And, and that everyone goes to Ralph Lauren in our, <laughs> at some point, and it's a great training ground. And I really learned about brand there. It's, uh, but the point is a wonderful one that you're making, that every job doesn't have to be perfect. You just have to take something really good away from it. What did you have in place when you eventually did launch here in New York in 2004? Well, I, I think that a lot of my jobs weren't that straightforward and easy. And certainly when I was at Ralph Lauren, I t- I learned a lot about different brand, the, the idea of brand and what it meant and protecting the the concept of what the integrity of what you're starting. And when I was there, Vera Wang was also there. Um, and I had met her briefly. She had worked there before, but they were friends. And when I left Ralph to go work with Vera, it was really a startup because she was trying to get rid of just being thought of as a bridal designer and really launch into ready to wear. So it was very entrepreneurial. And she trusted me. I think I was 27. And she said, why don't you build out advertising and public relations and and really help me build this concept. And I remember a call I made to American Express. And I don't know if you remember that commercial on Vera, but that was the first yes. thing I ever pitched. And it was a very cool idea. I do remember, do remember that. that. I'm not just saying that. I, re- I can picture it. It was the black and white. Yeah, it was totally. Exactly. And she was wearing a trench coat. And it was very it was very impactful and it was very different. Okay, so you clearly know how to get your foot in the door and hustle. Well, this is what I, I get over what, and over but again. But the word hustle is funny because I think I do it in a different kind of way. Because when you think of traditional PR, I didn't go, and I keep saying untraditional actually in this interview, but <laughs> it is true. I think looking at things not inside a box and not, yes. at, not out of the box either. I just think differently. That It reminds me of a conversation separate from this that I had with a tech entrepreneur who was basically saying, um, his dad says anybody who's an expert in something is not who he wants on that thing. <laughs> That's so like true. coming at it from a different perspective. Well, great. it's so true. And I don't know. My dad used to say that as well. And know what you don't know. <laughs> Completely. And, and also be a lifelong learner. I yeah. think that when I hire people at, at our company, I want to see that intellectual curiosity. And and to never – I said to my team yesterday, I want the word habit to be erased from our vocabulary. That's uh, – especially in this day and age, you cannot do things the same day after day. Like no. we've seen through disruption, through new technology, how bad that way of thinking thinking well, is what you won't be relevant and you want your company won't exist so you have to be very agile and and agility is something that we strive for every day that said we don't want to lose who we are so we have to be a, an uh, always evolved version of who we are so after the launch after the first store opened in new york what was the biggest surprise so well the very first day i think we sold through our entire inventory we did um, wow. it was it was a crazy day we we worked through the night the doors hadn't arrived it was in this downtown street in New York on Elizabeth Street. There was nothing there. And it was it's just completely bizarre location. But the rent was basically for free. So um, we found <laughs> If this, only that was true today, by the I way. I know, exactly. Now it's a bit uh, different. But we, um, I invited press, out-of-town press, um, friends and family. And we opened – well, we didn't open the doors because they weren't there. But we opened <laughs> at 10 until 6. And at 6 o'clock, we realized it was jam-packed all day. And it was almost as if we were giving things away because I think – 
people, we what we tried and what I worked diligently on for a solid year, worked on the concept a lot longer, um, was to give the best quality we could for the for the least uh, for the for as inexpensive mm-hmm. as, as we could possibly make it, and that was what the customer really responded to. And I forgot to say also after after Ralph Lauren, I went to Vera, but then I went to LVMH. But then um, one thing that I was faced with was I was offered to be president of Loewe, and I was pregnant with my third son. And I realized that I had to take time off to be a stay-at-home mom. So it was during that time, those four years, when I concepted our company. So were you at all worried when you're offered this big president position, turning it down? Yes, it was one of the hardest decisions I've ever made. And I had three babies under the age of four. And I know family for me is everything. And I knew that I would not be a great president, but most importantly, a great mom if I did both. But obviously a tough decision given everything that you had already – or was it a tough decision it was given very, everything? It yeah. was very tough because I really care about my career. And, yeah. you know, so for me, I've, I knew I always wanted to work. But that said, those four years that I took off, I felt very fortunate to mm-hmm. be at home with, with, with three babies. And, yeah. and then when I started the company, I worked from home for two years. So I was really home with them during their baby years. And that that was that was lucky because not all women can do that. So I was able to do that. But it, with that in mind, the whole time I was thinking about different ideas for companies. I was even thinking about launching a school at one point. What kind of school? <laughs> well, I had I had identical twin boys, and I went through the school process in New York, which is very frightening. It's and, insane. And so I thought, wow, well, there needs to be more schools. <laughs> and so I was researching the idea of starting a charter school and and starting this company at the same time. My husband, by the way, is a twin. So oh, I mean, identical, so I, identical twin. Mm. He would say real twin. Because you know identical I, makes I, you real. <laughs> that I always say I feel sorry for my boys' wives. They are so close because I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, my husband lived with his twin brother until he moved here to New okay. York to be for us to be <laughs> I together. I can relate. So, yes. So I, I'll tell and, you and all about mo- it. And their mother lived through it. <laughs> yeah. She she lived to tell the tale and is and all is well in, Very in the world. Yeah. <laughs> So, okay, so you launched the company. You have this surprise sellout, basically, on day one. So day one, we had the surprise sellout. We had to scramble. And and from the very beginning, I opened a sourcing and, and production office in Hong Kong um, because I knew that I needed to get different price points. And that had to be one of the smartest choices you made. It was definitely different, and, and people weren't really doing it that way. And it was also different because it was a retail concept. But actually, the most different part is that part of my business plan was to start a foundation for women. And uh, that was why I wanted to start the company. And it was uh, it's amazing to see the sea change now of the importance of purpose and, and companies. Yes. Because back then, I was told very concretely n- never to say the words uh, uh, business and social responsibility in the same sentence. And but, why were people telling you that? Because it would scare away investors? Oh, it, it was scare away investors. Not only that, and it was like a little pat on your back, like, oh, here's a little charity work. And I said, no, actually, I see it very differently. I see it as very important to the bottom line. And it was so funny. Funny, the the uh, one of our earliest investors said that to me, and I called him this December actually, and I said, you know, Len, I I have to tell you, you know, I remember our conversation so well, and I just came from a conference um, from Fortune and Forbes saying that doing good is good for business, and and I just want you to know that this is 14 years old. We've been talking about women's issues for 14 years, yes. and he sent a, a very large check to our foundation. <laughs> Wonderful. I was also going to say in that vein. 
before it was in vogue to be about helping females and female entrepreneurs, you were doing that even. So the foundation, it took a couple well, years before launched the launch it of the foundation. Well, so I knew I had to build a successful company. So we, we started the company in 2004. That said, internally, it was always part of the dialogue. And mm. we always did things around helping people within the company, even whether it was pay it forward or whatever charity uh, an employee would support, we would support in different ways. We would have children in from a church at Christmas. We would constantly try to bring in things like that. That. But really what I learned is that what I the most thing that I could offer is I saw the challenges women faced in business and I faced some challenges and I, I really felt that I could help. And so in 2009, we launched our foundation for women entrepreneurs in the United States. Where does that desire inside of you come from? You know, ever since I was little, my mom said she she didn't know if I would turn like she thought I would go to the Peace Corps. <laughs> she said, "Really? Yes." And I actually really considered it, but I've always wanted to help people. I think because my parents had a revolving door of helping people, people that coming in and out of our house, and the people are down on their luck would stay for come for for a few nights and stay for six years. And so it that was, it was a bit of a crazy household. We would yeah. never know who would be at the dinner table, and but it was really fun, and and it was um it, it showed us. A, a lot of color and character in life. And I think it also sounds like there's this underlying desire for purpose in your life, too, and that this was the purpose. I mean, you 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 loved clothing. You loved aesthetics. You loved art. But there was another purpose it that was, was really important was to the whole a, thing. a very different driving force. It was that and creating a business and being independent. My mom always said to me, you need to be independent. You never need to – you need to be able to do anything you want to do and you can as long as you work hard and be prepared to, to thicken your skin. Which you have to have tough skin, oh, I bet. In yes. a, in, I mean <laughs> – that yes, was the you best do. advice I ever received. Really? It was from my mother, and she said, think of negativity as noise. That is wonderful <laughs> advice. So when you ultimately launched the foundation, were there people actively saying, don't do this? Well, actually, it's interesting you say that. More No Limits after this quick word from our sponsor. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. So when you ultimately launched the foundation, were there people actively saying, don't do this? Well, actually, it's interesting you say that. I didn't want to talk about the foundation because I never wanted it to be perceived as marketing in any way. And I wanted it to have real impact and scale. And so I would say the last four years, we've had real impact and scale. And that's been a very exciting journey with my team. That's I'm thrilled to hear it. What is in your in your mind? What does real impact and scale look like? Well, we have a partnership with Bank of America, and that is that actually was a very interesting concept that I thought would be very easy to solve. They said we're going to give you two million dollars, and you have to give it out in a few months to women entrepreneurs. I said no problem. And what I didn't realize it has to be 
to, at the right cycle of their business yep. when they need a loan at the right terms and everything. So we went down the, a litany of issues. And so that was the problem we had to solve. And, and with Bank of America, we solved that problem. And we work with local lenders in each state and find the most inspiring entrepreneurs. And we're close to $40 million and, and, and counting. Wow. And we're averaging about a million dollars a month to female, to women entrepreneurs. The, the, the foundation is all about helping access to capital and also advice. And and really being there as a support for female entrepreneurs, given the fact that so many women entrepreneurs are not getting that funding. We've talked here about the statistics before and how few women actually get access to that capital. What do you say as the things that you learned along the way when going out and fundraising? What would you say is the number one thing that now that you've seen it from both sides that women should be doing to get that money? Well, I think number one, I talk a lot about confidence and uh, the way they have to be their best advocates. And um, when the whole embrace ambition came up, because when I first started the company, the very first article that was written on me was in the New York Times. And Jane Rosenthal, who started the Tribeca Film Festival, called me and she said, great article, but (laughs) you shied away from the word ambition. And she was absolutely right. And it really struck me. And 13 years later... I started uh, on International Women's Day. I wanted to address that very harmful stereotype of ambition around women. And I think when you look at entrepreneurs, you have to say you have to believe in what you're doing. It has to be something that is different and meeting a need. But you need to be your best advocate and you Mm -hmm. need to have the confidence to go for it and be prepared to work hard. Of course. (laughs) Absolutely. Work really, really hard. In this conversation about believing in yourself, we hear this all the time and I often think I totally I believe in myself, but there are the days, obviously, where you have that doubt. Of right? course, uh, many days. I've been through so many things. I, I mean, I wish I could give you a list of do's and don'ts, but there isn't that list. And I think it's it, it's personal. Um, there's so many times you're doubting. I remember my mom saying, you're Tori Robinson growing up. You can do anything. And, you know, the thing is, you have to believe in what you're doing. And and if you – I felt that I was missing something in the market, and that was beautifully made clothing that didn't cost a fortune. And there was either the gap or designer. And mm-hmm. there was – so we we were lucky we hit a white space in the market but things are things are tough now and it's a saturated market in all fields so you have to really be adding value to something and and think differently and 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 then you have to be a great great seller of your vision mhm yeah, you have to know your vision to sell your vision to and have you that do. North and Star. And be focused and short emails. <laughs> That's another thing. How long is, is a short email in your I mind? Think, I think one-liners are a great thing and, and and done with humor. But short email is like a paragraph, not 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 over two. How do you feel about the hope you're well lined in an email? It, it, you know, I think it's fine. I think I, I think I'm guilty of that. So we had a guest here I tell probably me. probably stop. One of our guests on No Limits said, never write hope you're well in an email. And I was like, I think I write that in all I of my know, emails. I know. Yeah, why did what was her reasoning? She said it's a it's, it's extra. You could just get yeah. She, well, she, her point was just like get to the point. Get to the point. Okay. Well, that's I don't mind. Hope you're well, but beyond that, I do mind. <laughs> I promise you, everyone is so busy. So, yes. Uh, you know, call anyone you want, and I totally believe in cold calls, but respect their time. Yep. 
Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so when you're, you've, you've launched the foundation now, we have here with us the hashtag Embrace Ambition oh, Movement. Can I say we one have, more thing before yes, we go on? Please. We have an education program. So we have, yeah. we have three pillars. We have, we have supporting women through capital, and that's, that's a big one with Bank of America. Then we have an education program with Goldman Sachs and 10,000 small businesses, which is like a mini business school that Babson wrote the curriculum. It's a free program where women apply, and it's been extremely successful. And that's been, I think, 170 women have gone through our program. Um, 10,000 women have written business plans on ToriBirchFoundation.org from our from our website. But 10,000 business 10, plans. 10,000 business plans and, and really getting traction. Are you a believer, by the way, and you need a business plan to start a business? I, I like having a business plan for, yes. I, I don't think you might. I, I think if you're going to be fundraising, yes. <laughs> I do. I think you need to show what how you're going to see the five years, <laughs> the first five years turn out. And then we have our own internal fellowship program. And that's where hundreds of applicants each year apply. We narrow it down to 30. Then we narrow it down to 10. And they come to New York and we mentor them. We give them each a 10,000 grant towards their education. And the winner gets 100,000 grant towards their education and business. That's awesome. <laughs> so that's what I wanted to get in. Where and do we go and apply and, for this? Well, it just, went, it just went live, the applications. And um, the last year's winner was this incredible woman who is an oncologist that realized that toothpaste had dangerous chemicals in it. So she she designed healthy toothpaste. And and when a business reaches a million in revenues, that's when we see that it has sustainability. And that woman should be our No Limits Entrepreneur of yeah, the Week. We, we feature an entrepreneur every week. She should be one of our features. And then we have the chocolate bar company out of Maine. We have so many great entrepreneur, entrepreneurs we could give you. To Fantastic. Feature. So you also have the bracelet now, yes. all the proceeds from this bracelet. Embrace ambition, yes. And so all the pro- 100% of the proceeds go directly toward the, towards the foundation. And in one year, we raised over $2 million. So that's a big number for us. For, for a bracelet that costs $30 and two for 50 that's that's very exciting. You and, seem like someone that just gets things done. No, I, I like <laughs> to get things done. But what did you see our Embrace Ambition video? Yes. That, so that reached 192 countries. So we believe that this is this harmful stereotype mm. needs to be addressed. And and now we'll be doing our, ver- our first summit on April 24th. And that's going to be very exciting. And we, we're taking the idea of, of challenging challenging stereotypes and bias in, in gender and race and um, but really focusing obviously on women but there's one there's one part that I think will be interesting we're having Joe Kennedy speak with with Kevin McCarthy and I, mm. I'm going to be interviewing them about what the idea of the perfect union is and what do women in politics face yes <laughs> challenges well yes I think that's a really important topic especially in this moment <laughs> so you have made things happen over and over again. There is no doubt that this is a challenging time for all businesses. How, especially in retail, if you were going to be getting in today, how different would you do things? Um, Very differently. That said, um, I launched with e-commerce 14 years ago, and I think that that was um, something that was very important. The landscape is changing. The customer is now in charge. So you have to think about retail differently. I still believe in retail. It's just a different kind of retail. And and the word omni is sort of like, how I hope you're well. It's very overused. But, <laughs> yeah. but really, I think we have to, as business leaders, figure out what omni means and how do you make the customer experience as seamless as possible. So um, content, I've been interested in original content for 11 years. We started the first online magazine or blog. And we did that 11 years ago. I hired editors from from InStyle. And 
that turned into what is now known as a blog. And that was really amazing because we were featuring women and also other designers. And people thought that was odd. But business today is, you know, is about change. And I think that you have to just be open and and always forward looking and, and interested in evolution, but never losing who you are in the DNA. How different will all of this look in 10 years? Do you have a vision? If you do, can you tell us a little bit about it? I mean, I, I, I'm i looking at a company right now that uh, takes DNA from cows and grows leather. <laughs> so the, it's it's beyond your imagination. At some point, we could grow a sneaker without seams. And when you think take that further and think of the implications of the environment and cows and how you might not need cows for their skins, it's it's obviously transformative. Uh, completely. You blew my mind with that answer. I was not <laughs> expecting you to go there. Okay. So when you look at the people who are coming out of design school right now, what's one thing that they could be doing better? Well, I think there's some great people coming out of design school. And I think um, even um, looking at materials that are sustainable and, and what they're doing with them, um, I think I always suggest that they're not really looking at the market. They're looking within <laughs> and through their own experiences. And I think once you get referential, then it's not as interesting in business. What made you, back when you were deciding whether it's going to be uh, a brand or a school, what made you ultimately go with, I'm going to build the clothing you know, I brand. think I just started to get very inspired. My parents were the inspiration. So I started working on boards and I started doing these image books. And then I started meeting with leaders that I admired and then some of my mentors today. And I think, you know, I just that really just took on a life of its own and started to get more traction. Nowadays, you were talking about the reach of everything and social media is obviously a really key part of all of that. How do you think about it in your own personal life and the distinction between Tory Burch the human and Tory Burch the brand? I I'm, think about it a lot. And in fact, social media is how we, we built our company. When we, We've never advertised in a traditional way. So we used Twitter. We were early adapters, Instagram, Facebook. And really, that was a, a direct dialogue to, to our customer. That said, I, w- and I wanted to always protect my privacy and, and protect my children. So I have my own private Instagram, which is for family and family shots. But I think it's a fine balance. And and I am um, very happy to represent the company, but I really am, uh, need to protect my, my family as well. So it's really finding that balance. Do you feel pressure? I certainly feel some level of pressure. People will say, well, you have to post more about your personal life because that's what people want to see. But that I like you. Those are the things that are sacred to me that I want to protect. Yeah, and I do hear that. And I think um, it's it's an interesting time. I, I don't feel obligated to do it. And you know, I think you have to make your Instagram inspiring and interesting. That's that there's different ways of doing that than than featuring your children. And it's more about that. And, and my fiance, I wouldn't, you know, for me, it's like you need to separate and have a bit of uh, privacy for, for yourself. And I'm sure you feel that way as well. Absolutely. Well, I value it. I yeah. value that, like... There are some things I just want to protect because in the same way that you, when you began with the foundation and people were giving you pressure, you didn't want it to be about marketing. It wasn't about selling. It was about this is what I'm doing because I care about this. Well, it's interesting because social media is all about authenticity. And I think if it's if it works, you have to be authentic. (laughs) How would you recommend women who are trying to get a message out as you have so successfully done and feel like they're not breaking through, what's one thing you would recommend women do differently? 
Well, I don't know if it's women or men. I mean, I think that anyone has to have a unique vision. Mm -hmm. And I think once someone has a unique vision, people start to see that. And people start to either like that. And, and that's how it builds. It, but you always have to come from your, your own, your own mind, your, your own, your own way. You have to find your own way. And that's something that, um, a lot of people really need to, work on. And inspiration is the easy part. It's all over. But you just have to take it as inspiration and really create your own vision. How do you decide when an idea isn't working? <laughs> um, usually it's looking at the numbers and then you <laughs> try to move very quickly. Um, that said, I always want to keep that entrepreneurial spirit in our business. But we once we do try things, and certainly many don't work, we, we want to be very quick to move on. I, I'm not emotionally attached to things, and I think that's, that's has that always been the case. Pretty or is much, that my mother finds it very funny. I mean, <laughs> I could be, I could live anywhere, be very happy. Yes, <laughs> and I just I find things. I'm really fascinated with business, and and that's I guess I love the creative, but I really love the business. And if something's not working, then I want to understand why. What's the toughest lesson you've had to learn along the way? Oh wow, there's been so many. I think. Um, you know, it's it's challenging being a woman in business. And even recently when talking to about my comp and uh, I, w I said to them, if if I were a man, you would never be addressing a comp situation like this and asking if they want more, more MIUs and less comp or more comp. And I just said, just it, it, it's a very vivid difference. I remember going to a conference and being introduced as a, a female CEO. And I got up and I just started laughing. I was like, I have never in my life heard a man be introduced as a male CEO. That's constant. <laughs> When I, it's really, I totally agree with that point. When does the conversation change? Well, I think it's changing. And uh, the Women's March, I thought, was a, a great start. That said, I think it's segmented. And I think there's so many different things happening. And it's like sensory overload. But I think fundamentally, women's issues are at the forefront. And women have to be great leaders like you and, and be role models. And I think that that's so important for us all to support each other. Um, I, I don't mm -hmm. I don't buy the phrase women don't support other women because that hasn't been my experience. And and certainly I'm I'm a girl's girl. And, and and I always have been that way. And I think to to see other women succeed is inspiring. And, and that's what's going to change, change things. And, and it has to. It's half the population. I mean, the, the fact that there's pay inequity is insane. <laughs> it's it's 50 percent of the population. It's a it's a human right. It's not really a favor. What has been the worst advice along the way? Well, I think, you know, I thought about that. I saw that question. I think it has to be don't say business and social responsibility in the same sentence. And and really, I think that just made me more determined. Um, but I did get that advice a lot uh, 14 years ago when I started the company. And what is your advice to women and men who want to create businesses that in addition to making money, are doing something impactful that they believe in. No, I think actually every business has to think about purpose, and or else it's not going to be relevant. And and that's something that I think is is a change. And you know, traditionally, big corporations were were very successful, and then all of a sudden they would start their foundation. Now I see it happening from the beginning, or at least it's starting to. It's just at the beginning stages. Practically speaking, how do you organize in a way where? Because ultimately, you have to continue business. Yes. Like if there's no if there's no profits, then there's nothing well, to go towards the other thing. You're absolutely right, and I'm not saying to do that 
from the beginning, but I think it should be part of the thought process and, and do it in a way that's authentic and what means something to you. In the beginning, we couldn't start the foundation. It took us five years to build the company before we could. But it was always there it was in always the meetings there. and in the conversations and in it the business was. plan. It was. I mean, it wasn't always front and center, of course. It was about the business. But, you know, in the back of my mind, it was always there. And it was always going to be a percentage of the sales and the EBITDA. And the, and, and it was it was always part of the thought process. Tori Birch, thank you so uh, much for joining me. Thank you for what you're doing for women. So important. You too. Thank, thank you. you. And now it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And our No Limits Entrepreneur this week is Marta Michelle Cologne. Marta is the founder of Buena Gente, which is a consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations achieve success by teaching them emotional intelligence. She's based in Puerto Rico and New York. She completed doctoral studies in clinical psychology and an executive program on social impact strategy at UPenn and started her career working at federal court and municipal government in Puerto Rico. After working for nearly a decade in government, Marta moved to the private sector. And she says that after working six years as a special projects lead director in the largest media conglomerate in Puerto Rico and sitting every Monday with the same people, the lack of good mornings and eye contact when they were addressing her or she was addressing them sparked the idea for creating something to impact and change their emotional intelligence. Who sits in meetings on Monday mornings where people don't say hello or make eye contact? Does that sound familiar? Well, she says that that same week that she had this realization, a mother at her son's school asked her if she could send her son once a week to Marta's home so that she could develop the same social skills that Marta's son has. The mother told her that Marta's son actually knew how to wait for his turn and say please and thank you. Sounds so simple. Well, Marta says that that was her epiphany, and she decided that she needed to create programs for children, adolescents, adults, and communities to practice their emotional intelligence. So what does she do? She enrolls in executive education programs in the emotional intelligence field, spends two years doing that, and then launches Buena Gente. Marta tells us that she started from scratch using her own money to build the brand to establish a clientele. She says she was making lemonade out of very non-juicy lemons. She also says that in the beginning, it was really hard because she had very limited funding. So she says she had to be frugal and only spend money on things that would bring in more business. Not pretty or fancy things that only added to the beauty, but not the financials. Marta says her biggest obstacle has been changing mindsets about the importance of emotional intelligence, how it makes individuals and organizations more successful, gain competitive advantage, and become more sustainable. But she says that she believes that sticking to that North Star, making sure that that original idea continues to be the idea, has been part of her success. She adds that she's a walking buena gente, which is her company name. It translates to good people. Buena Gente has achieved more than 40,000 ambassadors in schools, work, public places, among others. If she could go back and give herself advice, she says she would tell herself not to overstretch herself and to learn to say no. She says that on many occasions, to sustain an opportunity to be kind or just to avoid controversy, she overcommitted or overscheduled herself. After a chronic fatigue syndrome diagnosis, Marta says she learned the importance of her three marriages to herself, to her family, and to her business. Well, congratulations, Marta Michelle Cologne. I wish you and Buena Gente continued success 
It's nice to be surrounded by Boyda Hente. Remember, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, send me your nomination at no limits with rjpodcast at gmail.com. You can also send me your career questions there because we are, remember, doing on Fridays each month the RJ Answers segment where we talk about careers and your questions. So be sure to send me your emails there. I do read everything. I love hearing from all of you. And it really does mean a lot when you take the time to write us, whether it's about you and what you're doing or what someone else, a friend or someone you look up to is doing in their community. As always, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Rebecca Jarvis. Don't forget to use the hashtag no limits. I also want to give a huge shout out to our team here that helps make this happen each and every week. Taylor Dunn, my producer, our editor, Michelle Boncardo, our research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the team here at ABC Radio. Thanks.